Dude, there's been some crazy stuff that happened. Grizzlython submissions are over. Form Function, the one of one NFT marketplace, they are shutting down. They announced that. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't really know anything about them to begin with, though. It's just a one of one, like creator art driven marketplace for artists instead of like larger collections. Kind of sucks. Yeah, there was a bunch of Twitter threads about it. And I started talking with Pencil Flip, one of the co founders. I believe it was him and his partner are the founders of Form Function. I started talking with him a little bit. I know what you're talking about now, now that you mentioned Pencil Flip. Yeah. Now we're finally on the same page. Pencil Flip, good person. Damn. And then uh, all the. Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, all that drama, USDC depegged. Freaking crazy wild. week. Dude, I don't I don't know like what is the interval within which we consider a stable coin pegged? Cuz they all fluctuate a little bit. What's at yes. what point are is it considered a depeg? I mean, USDC is supposed to maintain $1. 1.00 right fluctuating maybe a, a couple of millipennies millis millicents it depegged down to like 88 cents that's a 20 almost 20 percent depeg that's pretty significant for a stable coin that hasn't to my knowledge had that problem before the thing that's different with usdc in my mind compared to like i don't even know if this is a good example because it doesn't exist on solana but like dai Right, DII is like a, an algorithmic stablecoin. Its way of maintaining value is not that it's like like physically backed by a dollar that you can actually like exchange at a bank. And so that something like that depegging to me is very different than something like USDC because with USDC, theoretically, like I don't know, I'm trying to think of what the scenario of it of it actually depegging would look like. Right, like. Like, I mean, it what just if, happened. What if, just look at what just well, happened. Well, hold on. Well, hold on. Hold on. Because this is what exactly what I'm saying is that it's hard for me to think of it as a DPEG when it's just a bunch of traders saying, we think disaster is going to happen. And what I'm asking here is, what is the disaster? How is SVB going to take down USDC, even if USDC has a bunch invested in there? It's like they still are saying they're going to honor withdrawals right you like you can still take usdc and send it a circle and get fiat back from that and so it is is the thing that we're banking on is the depegging in valuation is effectively a valuation of circle where we're saying that circle is gonna go down you know like the we're, we're looking at the likelihood of circle going bankrupt at as being 11 percent, and so now instead of worth being worth a dollar USDC is worth 89 cents. Does my question at all make sense here? Because I'm wondering what the disaster scenario is yes. and what exactly the difference in price is reflecting. So two things. One, or I guess three things. One, your question does make sense to me. Two, I don't understand, like, I just don't know how USDC mains, maintains its peg. Like, I don't know how like the technical aspect. So there's like some portion of this that I just technically do not comprehend. So I'm very curious of like how any stablecoin for that matter, whether it's an algorithmic stablecoin where it's not actually fully backed by a physical world currency or USDC where it is 100% backed by physical world currency being the US dollar. 
I don't know how it maintains the $1. Because like if you think of a liquidity pool of any other token, there's some amount of balancing action that happens as people trade in and trade out of said liquidity pool. So I just don't know. But I think to answer your question, I think what happened... So here's, from my understanding, this is what actually happened with USDC. They had about 20-ish percent of all US dollar funds inside of Silicon Valley Bank, which came out to about $3.3 billion with a B, B with a billion. So about $3.3 billion, about 20-ish percent. When the bank run happened on Silicon Valley Bank, everyone's trying to get their money out. They couldn't honor all of those funds and the bank crumbled. At the time when USDC depegged, the realization kind of came and there was like the Circle team and, and Jeremy Allaire, the founder of Circle, has been very public pretty much from the beginning. They've been in getting more and more public about how much they have and like how they're maintaining their, their funds a little bit. And so he was very open about sharing, this is roughly how much money we have there. This is like some potential downsides. And basically there was a, at the time, the U.S. government said that they were not going to cover all of these deposits and make all of the depositors whole. So with within the U.S., for those of you listening that are not inside the U.S. and don't know what FDIC is, within the U.S., we have something called FDIC insurance, which I think the I stands for insurance. So FDIC is a type of insurance that the U.S. federal government will back individual depositors, individual accounts, up to $250,000 at a given institution. So you can have multiple accounts at different institutions. You could have Wells Fargo, Chase, Silicon Valley Bank. Each of those banking institutions can have $250,000 in their accounts. And the U.S. federal government will back that if that bank crumbles for whatever reason. That's per depositor, by the way. Yes, per depositor, per depositor, per institution. So if you segment your funds, but a lot of startups will like circle included, they have a bunch of money in one bank or multiple banks, in this case, 3.3 billion. So at the time, the federal government basically was saying that they're not going to fill that hole. So what the public was kind of seeing and evaluating, which is why I guess USDC pegged, is there was about 20% of the US dollar that was backing USDC, which is going to be vanished. And those funds were not going to be made whole by the government. So people like were like, oh, you know, 20% of the money is going to be gone. So maybe it's worth 20% less, which is why I think it got around the 20% DPEG. That being said, Circle came out fairly quickly to my knowledge and the Circle executives and whatnot, they were basically saying that Circle is going to fund the rest of that money out of their own pocket and to make it whole, to make it stable, basically. They were going to take mm-hmm. the loss and be like, well, that sucks. We'll have to deal with that. And then the U.S. government eventually did come back and they said something to the fact that they're going to try to make everyone whole better. I want to make some things clear here, right? Which is the U.S. government's actually not spending any taxpayer dollars on fixing the SVB situation. Okay. Basically, the what the FDIC does here. It's effectively a federal agency. It stands for Federal Deposit Insurance Corps. It basically acts as this intermediary for making sure depositors get as much value out of their original deposit as possible. The $250,000 per depositor per institution is absolutely accurate, Nick. 
my understanding is that beyond that, the FDIC tries to guarantee all deposits, right? And this is not yes. a new thing. Their entire goal is to try to keep our banking system solvent. And so their goal is to is obviously to ensure that all depositors are made whole. They can't necessarily always do that. If you have a billion dollars in a bank and they can't recover all billion, they haven't guaranteed to ensure that much. That, that being said, that is the goal. And in this case, they were able to make that happen. And the reason they were able to make that happen is because SVB actually did have enough assets to cover. They just weren't fully liquid, if that makes sense. They had a lot tied up in bonds that if you were to wait for those bonds to mature, would have paid all depositors. But because yields have changed so drastically in the last six months, if they were to sell those bonds today to meet depositors' needs today, then it would be slightly less than what the depositors actually need to get back. I've heard on average it was about 4% down, basically. Yeah, based off, yeah. Based so off not, the not massive. Changes. Yeah, exactly. Say Circle had 20% or so in SVB, we're saying 4% of 20% is what they could lose. So it actually wasn't, even though the value depegged down into the 80, you know, 80 some cents on a dollar, that was a big overreaction to what the actual worst case scenario was. Because the worst case scenario is actually like, cool, down 4% of my 20%, which is not that much. Not saying it's not a problem. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm just saying I think the magnitude of a reaction is important. And then I also do think because I've seen or heard a lot of this false narrative that the government is stepping in and bailing out a bank, SVB is not getting bailed out, that's, right? That's, like SVB is 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 ceasing to exist as a bank. Rather, the FDIC has basically connected multiple parties who can buy the assets from SVB in such a way that makes depositors whole. The bank and bank management are done. Does that mean people in bank management are going to be screwed? Probably not. They're probably like really well off already, and they're and they're going to be fine but they're not going to make a bunch of money off of this at all. They're not going to make anything off of this and they're going to lose all their stock in SVB. I guess they don't lose their stock, but the stock goes to zero. So Yeah, there were a lot of reports that the executives of SVB were basically wholesaling all of their stock because they knew it was going to crash, which is, uh, you know, always... Which is securities violation. They'll get fucked for that yeah, if they don't. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's definitely not allowed. Um, but... This, I, that's I just anecdotal. Reports. I don't know if that's actually true. That is just what I have heard. Same. I just I saw not... tweets. Yeah. All this being said, like the old, the main reason I was asking was because of that big difference between the actual worst case scenario and what the value of USDC actually went to. If I were speaking for myself personally, so I actually have, I had quite a bit of money in USDC over last weekend when all this was going down and I never once considered trying to sell because in my mind, it's like even after I'd wrapped my head around everything, I maybe would have sold at like 99 and a half cents. Yeah, basically, it already bounced all the way back. Yeah, yeah. It hadn't bounced back yet. I'm saying that that's what I would have sold at. I wasn't about to sell at a loss of 89 cents on the dollar because in my mind, one, I knew that the worst case scenario was much more than that. Two, even before Circle said that they would make sure everyone's needs were met, I assumed that Circle has enough skin in the game here that they'll try to find other investors, other ways to get this paid out. I That wasn't a concern because to me, the value of USDC 
comes from the fact that Circle has a system in place to actually exchange USDC for fiat mm-hmm. in the same way that like the actual value of my bank deposits are that there is a system in place where I can get back my money when I need to. The trouble with a fractional reserve banking system, period, whether that's whether we're talking about Circle or whether we're talking about Chase or SVB or any bank, right? The trouble is always a bank run, right? Is if you don't actually keep one-to-one your money backed by fiat cash stored in a vault somewhere, there is always the risk of a bank run. People unfamiliar with finance get really frustrated by that because they're like, what's the point of a bank if not to keep my money safe? To that, I would respond, your money sitting under a mattress is like the equivalent of you having like a factory that is not being used. It's a drag on the economy to not utilize something that could be doing something positive. So like having money invested and not actually sitting in fiat is a good thing until there's a bank run and it's not. Until there's not, yeah. Which is why things like the FDIC exist to try to mitigate the downside while enabling the upside. Yeah, absolutely. And just to be clear for anyone listening, the difference between a fractional reserve banking system and a full reserve banking system is basically one difference. And it's that in a fractional reserve banking system, the holder of the deposits, so the bank, is able to lend your money to other institutions. And that is fully legal. And that's how basically how banks, most banks around the world make their money by lending your money to other institutions or other individuals. So when you take out a loan from your bank, you're pretty much borrowing money from other people that use that bank. So that's what a fractional reserve banking system is. A full reserve banking system that is not allowed. They can only hold your deposits and they cannot lend them to other people. They can only give them back to you. That's effectively the difference, just as a clarification. And if you wanted a full reserve system, you would have to pay for banking services rather than the other way around, right? Because there is a service being provided, Mm -hmm. securing Mm -hmm. your money, and you would need to be paid for that. Very similar to like, if you want something ad-free, I was just about to to make that that association. Yeah. Look, you can either pay your eight bucks a month for Twitter and get rugged on every single Twitter space you try to do, or you could have a full reserve (laughs) banking system. Exactly. And look, before, before people come at me for sort of like arguing that this is the best system or whatever. That's not necessarily what I'm doing here. Uh, I do think that our system is pretty dang good when I look at the last few hundred years or even a couple thousand years of economies. But I also think we can improve, right? My goal here in talking about this is simply to improve our collective awareness of how things actually work instead of just getting angry about how we think things work, if that makes sense. There's a difference in my mind between being angry at your system and being angry at the way you think your system works, right? And most people I see are angry about how they think the system works without fully understanding how it actually works. And it's what? like one of those I'm okay with Never and one of them I'm not. in my life have I ever <laughs> seen that before. People getting angry about things that they don't know or understand that is crazy. Preposterous, right? Preposterous. Uh, my first econ class in college, that, and that, that's my degree, by the way, is, is econ, which does not mean 
I, you should listen to me because like it's been a minute. This is for sure but, not financial advice. Definitely not. Not at all. That being said, my first econ class, I remember thinking like halfway through the semester, holy shit, why is this not taught in high school? Like this is not the type of thing that only some of us who decide to major in econ should learn. This is the type of thing that literally every single human should understand because of its impact on their daily life. Absolutely. And if we want to have arguments about the economy, if we want to have arguments about the economy after we're all talking about the same thing, I'm told I'm totally cool with that, right? Let's have arguments about like whether different industries should be more capitalist versus more socialist. I'd love to have those arguments, but we need to be having them on a level playing field where we all kind of understand educated the mechanics debate. behind things. Wild. I know it's crazy. What's that? Have you ever watched any political race in the U.S.? Um, <laughs> the, those don't qualify as educated debates. I, that was my point. <laughs> Some of them are. Most of them are not. Okay, it, good. Know, I, I so missed the joke. I flew right over your head. So I got a chance to talk to someone who used to work at Circle, and it was really cool to get their take on this. They worked at Circle, I think, when USDC launched. So I got a chance to talk to this person, and so I asked their thought about it. And they basically had very similar thoughts about like how we have expressed it here, which I thought was was both cool and, and reassuring. <laughs> but I also, I, do you know how USDC and Circle are like backed by US dollars? I think it's like, it's such a clever, yet sophisticated, yet simple, like methodology. Tell me what you learned. I think it's, well, Give sorry, me. I did already know this, um, but, and to my knowledge, this is correct, but the numbers may not be exactly true. But so, so in essence, Circle will take all of this U.S. dollar money or whatever currency they're doing. Because I think they're also working on a coin too, which is I think cool. Sick. So they basically take actual dollars, they deposit it into their bank accounts, and they are effectively the fiduciary, which is a very funny word to me. They are the fiduciary of this money. They are holding it and they're maintaining it. And they will take that money and they basically invest it in short to medium term U.S. bonds, but they only do shorter term bonds. So they don't have the same risks that like an SVB did where they were doing 10 year bonds at 1%, which is a terrible thing when interest rates go up, which is why this whole SVB shenanigans happened. But Circle basically invests that money to maintain, basically to make up for inflation, or at least try to make up for inflation. And they take all of their billions of, of US dollars and they do that. And I thought, like, that's when I first heard that, my initial reaction was, damn, that's a really clever way to handle a stable coin that is actually backed by the US dollar. Yeah. It's so interesting. It's not that different from any from bank. the fr fractional banking yeah. system we're talking about which is which by the way is exactly why i said my personal valuation of usdc over last weekend was like yeah a little bit down right but like practically on the dollar because could have bought some I got a quick pretty, 20% return yeah <laughs> i probably should have bought some i should have i don't know if it was ever quite 20% it was probably down to like 89 i'm looking at coin gecko right now and it's about 87 cents on the dollar. Okay, 87 cents so was the lowest it got to. 13%, right? Yeah. Ish. Still, I am bad at math. Great, though, so. great, 
great return for a weekend. <laughs> this was over the course um, of Friday the 10th to basically the 13th. So yeah, three days. Yeah. By Monday morning, everything was already sort was sorted. So yeah. I can't imagine it lasted longer than that. Don't you hate when it, your banking system crumbles over the weekend? Cut. <laughs> Man. Um, you just got to get no, the validators I, to restart on time, right? This is, yeah. So, so look, ultimately there's a ton of nuance to all this conversation and there's a ton of nuance to the mechanics of how you actually get from a fiat dollar to USDC, I'm sure. But ultimately what matters is I think how simple you put it, right? Which is just like, yeah, there are actual dollars that are deposited into a bank account. And then when those are deposited, one token of USDC is issued in exchange for that. And then what they do with that bank account is, like you said, short and medium term bonds to try to keep up with inflation, probably make a little bit of money off of it, that sort of thing. Just like any regular bank in the US. I think a lot of people in the crypto space are not here for anything fiat related, in which case USDC might be too close to that. That's not my reason for crypto. They're still like, holding not, all their Luna though. I'm not here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not in crypto because I'm like down with the system. I'm in crypto because I want increased optionality. So in my mind, having a fiat backed stable coin is great. And then let's also have an algorithmically backed stable coin like DAI. Let's have a bunch of different options. And over time, we will see the merits of each and what actually works. Maybe I'm wrong. And maybe there is a future where there's no like government created fiat currency and we're all using like algorithmic coins on chain, who knows? But to me, it's just about optionality. And if you're going to have options, you also need good education. Everyone needs to understand what these options are, how to use them, et cetera. Yeah, I agree. One of the big things of like why I find crypto very interesting is because I do kind of see it like personally as the next natural evolution in the financial system. It's just inherently more efficient which efficiency I agree. is generally the next thing after something has been established for a long period of time, right? So it's having greater efficiency and having that optionality, like I think is important for, for people and civilization to grow. So 100%. Yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about Grizzlython. We talked about the almost collapse. Now let's shift away from these somber topics to something more fun, which is Grizzlython ended this week and a shit ton of awesome projects. 800 projects, over 800 projects were submitted. I saw totally tweet about it. And I think the, his, his message said something to the effect that this is the highest number of project submissions that have happened for definitely for Solana hackathon, like a, or an event similar to a hackathon, but pretty much any event, I think don't quote me on that, but Either way, that is a astonishing amount of projects that submitted, and I am real excited to see what comes out of it. It's pretty pretty freaking sick. I tweeted a couple days ago basically saying, hey, submissions are in. I haven't looked to see if there's a comprehensive list somewhere. I just asked Twitter to surface projects for me. And Get blessed by the Twitter I, gods. I, yeah, and I got a bunch of responses, which I was really excited about because I got to just read through... I didn't dig into every single one because I, I got a bunch of replies, 
but I looked through the list and people have built some really, really cool stuff. I responded to so many people. Tell me about one of your favorite things that you've seen someone built. Yeah, there were a couple of different ones that were like leveraged trading platforms that I can't vouch for how well they work or how they work even. I responded to both of those and said, hey, do you have a white paper or something? Because I'd love to see that. Because one one basically said it was like a liquidation free leveraged trading platform. And I'm over here like, how the fuck does that work? That like sounds if no really one's cool. if no one's getting liquidated, that could be a problem. But also if you found some way to make this work, like this could be cool. There's different trading things. There are a couple of like mobile focused UX related things that I thought were cool. So Diraj replied to me. I'm looking for his project so that I can shout out the name, I think is what it's called. He says lightning fast in-app transactions on mobile. Stemo will blow you away. I looked at it, looked really cool. Again, I haven't dug in super deep into any of these, but the high level, the 15, 20 second pitch on all of these, I'm just like, wow, there's a lot of potential across a lot of these projects. Yeah, that's really cool. I haven't really seen any, like a whole lot of the projects yet. I am really, really excited to. I think the official list is going to be published sometime in the next like week or two of all the submissions. And as Dude, soon as that's published- Tiny Dancer? I did see Tiny Dancer. Tiny Dancer. Tiny Dancer. Well, like- Light client, like right? Awesome. Do you know what a light client is? Could you effectively describe it or explain it? Only very high level. The idea is to run a validator, let's run like a full node on Solana requires a, a decent amount of hardware. It's something anyone could do if they wanted to, to dig into it, but it's definitely not something that you're just going to like run in your browser or something, right? So the idea of a light client is how can we verify that the information we're getting back from another validator is in fact correct? Is there a lighter weight version of a validator that we can run that basically just checks that the data we're getting is in fact accurate? Okay. That, kind of this kind yeah. of this trust but verify model. I love the phrase trust but verify. My entire last career was built upon this premise. <laughs> built on trust but trust but trust verify. but verify. Um nice. yeah, that's really cool. I remember there has been, I think there's been like an issue, like an open GitHub issue on the Solana repo for like a long time of like a request for a light client and just no one has gotten to it yet. Also, I think there, it, I think it's official that any client for Solana has to be something dancer. Like it's a requirement now. You've got fire dancer, <laughs> you've got tiny ever dancer. Since fire like it's, dancer. It's basically a requirement. So what's the next dancer? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Real fast. I'm looking... Introducing Tiny Dancer, the first light client for the Solana blockchain, our submission for Grizzlython. Their video is pretty dope, right? There's a video? I need to watch this. I have not seen this. Yeah, so definitely go check it out. Again, I haven't dug into this a whole lot either, but I do know some big names were either involved or, or at least are pushing it, which it doesn't necessarily mean it's great, but... It gives me a decent amount of trust in it. I'm excited to to dig in a little bit more, right? Yeah, that I also I'm gonna watch this video after after the episode, and uh, we'll link it up in the show notes. And I'll force cool. James to give me the links to the other projects he was talking about too. Ooh, Can hey, do. I've got an idea. How about once the okay. official list is published, we pick maybe like two or three projects that we think are really cool, and we just like 
go through them on the episode and like talk about them and uh, why we, we think it's we cool. should totally do that. We should totally do that and then we should bring bring the some creators on. on board. I would yeah. definitely be down for that. As much as I enjoy our conversations, Nick, I also very much enjoy our conversations with other people. Well then, I guess. Well then, I guess uh, Nick, Nick's, you're Nick's just, offended. You're just uh, trying to be all polyamorous on our podcasting relationship. I see. Whoa, whoa! You're the one who handles inviting people most of the time. That's true. Don't put this on me. That's true. All right. Well, we'll have some more people on the episodes. Sweet. Were there any other projects that stood out to you or are you still just waiting for the list? Uh, I'm still just waiting for the list. Something that I did see elusive. Are you familiar with the elusive protocol, elusive project? It sounds really familiar. It's been like the name and the idea has been around for a while for like a year or so. And they just released to mainnet. So basically what elusive is, I don't know if they did a hackathon submission because they've been building it for like a long time. I think personally, one of the downsides about blockchain is that every transaction is public for the most part, especially on Solana. Solana doesn't currently have a zero knowledge proof type protocol for other blockchains that do. There's things like tornado cash. Tornado cash was a huge thing. It was basically a token mixer. So there was a lot of money laundering that happened with it. There was a lot of legitimate use cases as well. Vitalik himself even said as a Russian national, he would use something like, tornado cash to send money to ukraine because he wanted to help fund ukraine instead of supporting russia it's like there's legitimate Mm -hmm. use cases of legitimate people that want or need to obfuscate who they are where they got their money but it's still all legitimate right from my understanding elusive kind of takes that idea but it also makes it so you can prove any transaction is bad so you can basically have a zero knowledge type token transfer where you can store money i presume in some sort of pool or something you can store your tokens and you can send tokens to individuals but they won't be able to see your address so they can't see all of your assets if you are say a coffee shop or you're some sort of storefront you don't necessarily want everybody to be able to see how much income you're making off of selling your products if you're accepting cryptocurrency right you could use something like this like the elusive protocol you could legally and, and safely obfuscate that, but still be able to interact fully with the blockchain. But the cool thing is, and I I would love to talk to someone from Elusive. This is just the coolest thing ever. They How they have their like system and their protocol designed is the greater we of the Solana community, there is a way that you can prove a bad transaction and you can still track illicit funds. There's like some requirement, some threshold that like, how the technology works is you can basically, you can flag a transaction saying, hey, there was a hack, this money got transferred into the elusive protocol pool, and then you can still track where that bad money goes. It takes extra time because of zero-knowledge proof type things, which I don't fully mm-hmm. understand, <laughs> but but you can fully track it. So what that gets you is you can get effectively full token privacy And then if bad things happen, you can still prove that someone was bad and they're still moving illicit funds around. I'm looking on their site right now and it looks super sick. So Um, if, if anyone from Elusive is listening or anyone knows them, tell them one of their, one of their coming soon things is a privacy toolbox. That is, it looks like it's a suite of privacy tools 
that will allow you to make not just payments, but other things on other programs private, but also compliant to laws and that kind of stuff. I'm super, super interested in this. I was actually just talking to Chase last week about some more lessons that I'd like to create. And one of them is how to secure on-chain data because it's public data. How do you secure it so that you're not just giving everything away by storing it on-chain, which I think is I think is an important step in making on-chain data continuously more viable. So that's sweet. I'd love to I'd love to chat with Elusive and uh, and some other some other hackathon projects. Yeah, I'm super bullish right now. I'm always at the end of the hackathons. I'm super bullish on Solana because we just build a lot of stuff, and I can't help but think that the more you throw at the wall, the more likely something's going to stick. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm so bullish. On that note, let's well, wrap it. You should. You work there. I I got this <laughs> really cool sweater that James is very. I'm also of. wearing a Solana sweater. That's true. I- that you should be jealous of because it's like an old school one, but yours is pretty dope. Oh, and a shirt. Yeah. I'm, Damn. I'm fully decked out. All right. Well, guys, this was fun. We'll see you next week. Bye. Peace out.